It's Muppeturgy with an episode full of heartbreak and passion and Liza Minnelli with our own very special guest star, Matt Baum. Yay! Yay! I was trying to <laughs> summon up some kind of keeling over dead over audio, but I don't know Y'all, how it work. It has been over a month since we recorded due to various life things. Here we are. Life has been lifing. And we are so glad to be back together with each other and with you, our listeners. Thanks for being here with us. I'm David Levy. Here with me are Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, Christy Bauer, and our aforementioned very special guest star, Matt Baum. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks Yay. for being here. Yeah! Matt Baum is a writer, podcaster, and video maker based in Seattle whose work focuses on pop culture and queer history. His latest book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, traces the evolution of LGBTQ plus characters on American sitcoms. In his popular YouTube series, Matt shares behind-the-scenes stories about the movies and TV shows that changed the world, and the fascinating people involved. He's also the creator of the podcast The Sewers of Paris, which explores the entertainment that has shaped the lives of queer people. He currently resides in Seattle with Too Many Plants and his best friend. Matt, tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets. Gosh, um, I cannot think of a time in my life where the Muppets were not in some way involved. Um, as a child, of course, it was my preferred television program, either The Muppet Show or Sesame Street or Fraggle Rock, and occasionally mustering up the bravery to watch The Dark Crystal. Uh, so it was always a piece of entertainment, a, a universe of entertainment. Gosh, even the um, the the Bremen singers or the, the Bremen musicians and the the rabbit uh, picnic. I'm probably mailing the, the name. Bunny picnic. picnic. Yeah. Tales of the bunny picnic. Yeah. Like all of that stuff was, was so important, just captured my imagination. And then fast forwarding a couple of years, I went to college for television, film and writing, wound up getting an internship at the Jim Henson company and worked there for a little while at the studio in La Brea. And then um, discovered that Los Angeles was not really compatible with my sensibilities, uh, and so moved on to uh, other pastures. But I wouldn't say greener pastures, because what could be greener than Kermit? Uh, and so I, I have always, from before, during, and after my time with the Henson Company, uh, I've always been just a colossal, colossal fan. Wonderful. And uh, why don't you tell us also right now a little bit about your Richard Hunt video, because I think that's something that our listeners either already know about and love or would be interested in. Yeah. So um, one of my uh, jobs is uh, I make videos for YouTube about LGBTQ media and history and uh, pop culture. Uh, so iconic movies and television shows and the fascinating people behind them. Uh, and I did a video, oh, probably about a year ago about Richard Hunt. Um, so I, you know, I always look at at media in general. I look at pop culture through a from a queer perspective. And uh, Richard obviously was a uh, was a gay man who uh, was really involved, like integral to the Muppet Show and to a lot of their other projects. Um, so I did a kind of a deep dive behind the behind the Muppet Show curtain uh, at who Richard was, where he came from, uh, his background, why he was such an exciting and engaging and creative individual, and of course, you know how he was taken away, taken from us too soon. Uh, what a tragedy! But all the wonderful things that he leaves us with, uh, you know, including a, a really. Um, meaningful performance uh, from Fraggle Rock, uh, among many, many, many other works. Yeah, and we will include a link to that video in our show notes, which you can find at Muppeturgy.com. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. So this is a weird update, but uh, I felt I needed to include it because sort of in preparation for this, uh, sort of just because it was Christmas, I watched the famous and beloved uh, 1963 Judy Garland Christmas special in which Ms. Garland sings 
highest bow, not <gasps> muddle through somehow, oh, a lyric shit. about which some of us had some strong opinions. So I don't know, even Judy gave in at some point, And I guess maybe some of us not saying who might have to as well. Do you think that she assumed that because the Sinatra version was so big that it superseded the original? I do. Also, I mean, the context of the you know TV Christmas special is very different from the context in the movie in which yeah. it's telling a story and the scene is actually heartbreaking. But I don't know. <laughs> I reacted. <laughs> but also, that thing is great, and you should watch it. And Liza Minnelli is in it uh, as, what is she, like 16 in that? So yeah, it's, it's worth a watch. We'll include it in the show notes. Also, and this is even weirder, in the time between when we recorded the Kenny Rogers episode and when we released the Kenny Rogers episode, Disney Plus apparently is no longer putting those unskippable 12-second disclaimers on Muppet Show episodes, which is real weird, actually. Um, I went back and checked a couple other ones that that we know have them, uh, and they're no longer there. The, the little, uh, hey, someone smokes a cigarette in this disclaimers are still there. I also checked Peter Pan, which is real racist. It's still there. So it's it's like not a bug. They have not removed and they've not removed them from the platform entirely. They seem to have made a choice to remove them from the Muppet Show, which I think is weird. And to not like replace them with the little one in the corner, to just have them be totally gone from the thing with the haha funny Arabs, I think is really strange. I bet someone just like accidentally clicked a button at HQ and they don't realize it. Well, that's why I thought maybe they were gone completely. Right, they'd be gone from the the other stuff too, but they're not. This is probably a good point to also just say if you're listening to us before you've watched the Liza Minnelli episode, uh, there's at least one song that probably would have merited such a disclaimer. We'll get there right. when we get at least there. at least the little one. So yeah, <laughs> trigger warning for the UK spot. But yeah, it's uh, it's very odd. We will of course continue to do that when we need to in our own episodes. Um, also, that we do record these in advance, and sometimes things change from when we record them to when they come out. And so, thank you to the listener who uh, who mentioned that that was not there. Here is a Muppet news flash. So we are here this week to talk about season four, episode fourteen of the Muppet Show. It was produced July 30th, 1979 and aired November 19th, 1979. It was number nine in the air order between Beverly Sills and Lola Falana. In the news, three hostages were released in Iran. Ayatollah Khomeini ordered the students to release all female and black hostages whose spying was not proven. The women were to be released, he said, because Islam holds women in high regard and the black people because they are oppressed by American society. The delay in carrying out the Ayatollah's order was caused because the students said they were still seeking to determine whether they were innocent of espionage. The students insisted they were not using force in making that determination. So, you know, I guess a stopped Ayatollah is right twice a day <laughs> or something. That way. Uh, Thailand is opening its border to Cambodian refugees. Footprints, possibly the oldest by ancestor of man, are found in Kenya. The 1.5 million year old prints are more interesting for what they say about the behavior of early human-like creatures than about their evolution. They were found along with tracks left by hippopotamuses and wading birds on the same day in the shallow muddy lake. I don't understand how they knew it was the same day, but I'm going to move on. <laughs> the prints were far from the usual habitat of Homo erectus. <laughs> Anthropologists speculated that the creature may have been hunting the hippos. So if you, like me, are a human anthropology nerd... <laughs> 
or rather a human evolution nerd or an anthropology major or both. This is something we are learning about Michal in real time. (laughs) (laughs) If you hear, oh, the footprints and you think, oh, I know what footprints those are. It's not those footprints, the ones that had been discovered a year earlier in 1978 by the team of Mary Leakey. Uh, I have heard of Mary Leakey. Okay, I'm back with you now. Footprints left by Australopithecus afarensis, affectionately known as Lucy. It's not those footprints. It's other footprints discovered a year later and from later in history. The the ones found uh, left by Lucy's species were 3.6 million years old. These footprints were 1.5 million years old and discovered by the team of Richard Leakey, Mary's son. Wow, Nepo babies, even in anthropology or paleontology or whatever ology this is. <laughs> yep, yep. I don't know if this science holds water. Take it up with the Leaky Le- Foundation, Leaky. which okay. is still a thing. Doesn't sound like a very stable foundation. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chevron has another one of those super defensive ads. Every week it's a different oil company and it's uh, awful. There's lots of grocery ads for Thanksgiving. And there is a theater review that just I enjoyed. Alter Boys does what Anita Bryant could not. The play by Stephen McGowan, which opened last night at Theater 4, makes homosexual love not so much naughty as tedious and not so much erotic as egocentric. I have not seen that play, but I have seen that play. (laughs) On the Cashbox Pop Charts, Still by the Commodores is the number one song, and The Long Run by the Eagles is the number one album. Having a real long run. On PBS, a uh, show documentary thing about the Dion Quince, the story of the world's most famous babies and the exploitations they endured following their birth in 1934. My grandma was obsessed with the Dion Quintuplets. Obsessed. Shout out to my grandma. She just passed a couple weeks ago. She would be delighted that we were talking about them. Like she had dolls, like porcelain dolls of the Dion Quintuplets. Wow. Like, like there was a whole like merch. It was a whole thing. Market. Like yeah. commemorative spoons. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh. Um, Broadway nerds know them because they were lyric and I'm still here in Follies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just put that together. There's, um, there was also an article in the paper about this. Uh, they were the first set of identical quintuplets to survive more than a few hours. Um, and yeah, it was a whole, was a whole thing. Uh, CBS has the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, which we have discussed on previous Thanksgivings, followed by MASH, and then 1977's The Turning Point, which is a ballet movie classic written by Arthur Lawrence and starring Anne Bancroft, Shirley MacLaine, and Mikhail Baryshnikov, and it is definitely worth a watch if you can find it. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. ABC has the usual 240 Robert and Football. NBC has Little House on the Prairie, The Faith Healer, Tragedy Results When Mrs. Olson Invites a Faith Healer to Speak to the Walnut Grove Church Congregation. I didn't watch it, but reading that description, I think maybe I should have. What? I don't know what the tragedy is. It, well, yeah, how does well, I one... I assume someone was sick and they didn't get healed. Sh- sure. Sometimes these descriptions are really poorly written, but it does sound like one thing follows on the other. <laughs> I suspect they're two separate events. That was followed by Bob Hope on Campus. The comedian tours half a dozen American colleges with Dion Warwick, Sister Sledge, The Village People, Tanya Tucker, Teddy Pendergrass, Joe Namath, and Bear oh. Bryant. 1979, everybody. Wow. All of them together? At the same time? Unclear. Given it was a tour, I suspect they were not all together and they made different appearances, but it, still. <laughs> I would love to hear Dion Warwick's recollection of that experience, should she have any. Yeah, Bob Hope and the village people in the same place <laughs> at the same place. time. Brayla, can you imagine a Republican comedian today doing a 
campus tour with something like the village people. <laughs> Our guest star tonight is one of the few ladies on earth who deserve the title superstar, Miss Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, not Lisa Minnelli, singer, actress, EGOT, icon, and yes, Nepo baby. Yeah. Buckle up. This is a long one, folks. <laughs> Liza Mae Minnelli was born in 1946 to actress and singer Judy Garland and director and designer Vincent Minnelli. She made her screen debut in 1949, appearing in the final scene of In the Good Old Summertime, playing the child of Judy Garland's character. As a teenager, she moved to New York, where she attended the High School for the Performing Arts. She began performing in Summerstock, and she made her off-Broadway debut in the 1963 revival of Best Foot Forward. She won a Theatre World Award for her performance, and her single of the song You Are For Loving from the show sold half a million copies. This led to her beginning to make appearances on television variety and talk shows and raising her national profile. The following year, Liza debuted her nightclub act, having previously performed in concert on a double bill with her mother in London. This led to a recording contract with Capitol Records. For her first album, she recorded two songs by a new songwriting duo named John Kander and Fred Ebb, including the song Maybe This Time, which they had written for Muppet Show guest star Kay Ballard. Kay was pissed, but Liza's partnership with John and Fred would prove to be the most important artistic collaboration of any of their careers. Before her next birthday, she had a Tony Award for her Broadway debut, starring in Kander and Ebb's Flora, The Red Menace. Flora did not last long on Broadway, and Liza followed it up with a concert tour, a marriage to singer-songwriter Peter Allen, noted homosexual, and her film debut in 1968's Charlie Bubbles. She received her first Oscar nomination the following year for her role in The Sterile Cuckoo. This period of tremendous success also coincided with a period of tremendous pain, beginning with her mother's death in 1969. To cope with her grief, Liza began taking prescription Valium, which led to a drug and alcohol addiction that she struggled with for decades. By this point, Liza's marriage to Peter Allen was on the rocks, largely because he was gay, and, as Liza later admitted, everyone knew it except for her. They separated in 1970 before divorcing in 1974. We'll talk more about Peter Allen in future episodes when the Muppets perform his songs. During their separation, Liza was attached to Desi Arnaz Jr. and Muppet Show guest star Peter Sellers. She also began a long relationship with Muppet Show guest star Charles Aznavour, with whom she performed frequently over the years, which he later described as, quote, more than friends and less than lovers. Meanwhile, Liza starred as Sally Bowles in the 1972 film adaptation of Kander and Ebb's Cabaret and won herself an Oscar. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. That film was, of course, directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse, and Bob and Liza and John and Fred followed it up with the best television special of all time, Liza with a Z. But it does drive you bats to be mis mispronounced. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes snot. It's Z instead of S, Lie instead of Lee. It's simple as can be. C Liza, then M I double N, then E double L I. You double up the N, that's not new. Then E double the L, end with an I. That's the way you say Minnelli, Liza Minnelli. It's easy! It's easy! See, it's lazy. No! Liza! She won an Emmy for that, the same year as her Oscar, and she also became the first performer to appear on the covers of Time and Newsweek the same week. Which, if you're young enough to not remember when those were big deals, that was a very big deal. 
When Liza and Peter divorced, she married Jack Haley Jr., the son of her mother's Wizard of Oz co-star, who was himself a successful director and producer of films such as That's Entertainment, in which Liza appeared. She returned to the concert stage, winning a Tony Award for her Broadway concert at the Winter Garden, and surprising and delighting audiences when she stepped in for an ailing Gwen Verdon as Roxy Hart in Chicago for six weeks without any advanced publicity. During this period, Liza was a frequent visitor to Studio 54, partying with friends including Halston, Bianca Jagger, and Andy Warhol. She made a handful of less successful films in the late 70s, including A Matter of Time, the final film directed by her father, and New York, New York, directed by Martin Scorsese, a terrible film with a great soundtrack, giving her another signature song written by Kander and Ebb. She reteamed with Scorsese and Kander and Ebb for the Broadway musical The Act, which had a famously troubled out-of-town tryout due to some combination of Scorsese's inexperience with the stage and deep experience with cocaine, all of which was likely complicated because Scorsese and Minnelli were also fucking. It nevertheless won Liza her third Tony Award. This is more or less where we find ourselves when Liza comes to The Muppet Show. Shortly after taping The Muppet Show, Liza married again, this time to Mark Jarrow, a sculptor and stage manager. They stayed together for 12 years. She kicked off the 80s, co-starring with Dudley Moore and Arthur, her last big screen hit. She continued to make films and television appearances and albums and give concerts. She returned to Broadway and Kendra and Ebb's The Rink. But the 80s were marked by frequent stints in rehab, followed by relapses into addiction. She ended the 80s with a collaboration with the Pet Shop Boys and netting her EGOT when she received one of the first ever Grammy Legends Awards. She's had a long career with lots of ups and downs, so I'm going to just speed through the last 30 years and mention that she returned to Broadway for a short stint taking over for Muppet Show guest star Julie Andrews in Victor Victoria. She made a number of albums and television specials and concert tours. She had a memorable recurring role on Arrested Development. She married and divorced David Guest and mostly defied the odds by continuing to live and thrive much longer than anyone would ever have guessed. She's still around, and while she isn't working much, she has made memorable appearances at the 2022 Oscars and with her friend Michael Feinstein, both in his concerts and on Facebook. I know we all have lives and memories, so maybe to keep this podcast from being 12 hours long, let's briefly share uh, what Liza means to each of us. Who wants to go first? I'll share a somewhat Henson adjacent uh, memory that I have with Liza, which is that when I was interning at the company, that is when she married David Guest. And I remember looking in, it might have been People Magazine or something like that. Uh, I was looking at an article about it in a magazine with one of the other many gay secretaries who worked there. And I just distinctly remember looking at this wedding announcement or wedding picture article or whatever and saying out loud, what could he be thinking? And the other secretary saying, my boyfriend's going to kill me. And so that was one of my Liza Minnelli associations. Knowing that we we have a, a lot of listeners who are younger than us and also who maybe are not as uh, musical theater um, versed as us, my own path to musical theater fandom and like classic diva fandom was circuitous at best. And 
especially like sort of grow, you know coming of age in the 80s and 90s like i didn't get liza for a while um as david mentioned that was a rough time for her she also she became even like when she was great she was very easy to parody and i think we talked about this a bit when we did the dudley moore episode and we talked about arthur like you know she sort of became a caricature of herself a little bit like and used that to her advantage but like i didn't get it and so i i would say like if you are like, why are they so obsessed with Liza Minnelli? Like, seriously, go watch Cabaret. Like, that was what did it for me. And and Liza with a Z. It is the most 1973 thing that ever 1973, but it's also, and Fosse too. Like, you will understand both of them if you watch it. And we'll put clips in the on the show page if you just want highlights. To look at her in her prime, like, as a, as a performer, as a dancer, like, it's really something. And it really helps. I was lucky enough to see her. She did a concert stint at the Palace in, on Broadway in 2008. And like my boss got invited to the dress rehearsal randomly. And like I had my then brand new boss. And she like yelled out to the office. She's like, does anybody want to see Liza Minnelli with me tonight? And like nobody answered her. And I was like, I guess I do. Because sure, for free. And what I remember most about it is that like, in between songs, I was legitimately afraid she was going to die. Like she was <laughs> panting and sweating and like holding onto the stool for dear life. But also like she was doing that because she wanted to talk to us. Like that was, you know, it was the shtick. It was the, it was like patter, but you know, and then, sh- then a song would start and she was Liza, like instantly, like whatever was going on when she was performing, she was like the most on person in the world. And I don't know if that's was healthy for her. <laughs> But it was amazing to watch. Yeah, there were so many instances of being aware that this was a person with a name who had a certain presence that I was absorbing in whatever media I was watching as a kid, but not really fully realizing the extent of her and the full bent of her presence until I watched Cabaret and watched this episode. But yeah, when I watched her on Arrested Development, when that was airing, she was brilliant and it was wonderful. But I didn't really know fully what the idea of Liza meant until later. Um, or even she was in The Muppets Take Manhattan, which I watched approximately 30 gabillion times as a kid. Um, and my friend played Liza with a Z for me when we were growing up. So as someone who is driven bats by being mis- mispronounced, <laughs> I've always had some sympathy for that. But yeah, getting uh, that fuller picture as an adult has been has left an impression on me as well. Yeah, I'm one of those people that I I could go on for 12 hours about how much she means to me. I mean that that Newsweek cover I have framed on one of my walls. I have a, a Japanese poster of Cabaret on another wall, and a, a friend of mine who is fluent in Japanese translated it for me once. And like the the majority of the the text that is not just like you know Cabaret and the credits is like talking about Liza and how fabulous Liza is. So that makes me very happy. But yeah, the thing that I love about Liza Minnelli is that. She so on the Dudley Moore episode, we talked about my deep and long love of the movie Arthur. And part of that is, you know, I discovered that movie in high school and it taught me at a formative age that it is possible to be a glamorous weirdo, which is the like pinnacle that I aspire to. You know, the fact that someone like her could be uh, one of the co stars of a major studio rom-com is inconceivable today. And I dream of living in in the world of, you know, where 
the you know glamorous weirdos and the louche englishmen and you know all all of all of those characters who have sort of you know disappeared with the monoculture thrived she just is an inspiration to me pretty much daily so matt as our guest you get to go first uh we know what you think eliza what do you think of the episode Oh, thank you. Um, this just really reminded me of how great it is to watch the Muppets when they are playing characters. Obviously, they are themselves characters, but it's such a joy to see them acting, you know, and putting in in kind of finger air quotes. Uh, you know, the the Great Muppet Caper works so well because they're they're playing the twins who are solving a, a mystery, but they're not really playing characters because they're really just Kermit and Fozzie. But they are kind of playing characters because, you know, and the same thing with this episode. It's just so fun to watch them playing, you know, Kermit as a detective and uh, Fozzie playing a cop who's investigating things. They're just such versatile, fun characters. And also just what a star Liza Minnelli is. She's just, you know, one of those you can't take your eyes off her presences, just owns every single moment she's she's on camera. So I really enjoyed watching this and also reminded me of all those um that that social media outcry when Glass Onion came out that the Muppets should do a, a, a Knives Out style mystery movie, and there seemed to be some enthusiasm for that, and then nothing really came of it. So uh, I I don't know if I actually want to see that happen. It was just really fun to see the Muppets doing a murder mystery, and I guess you know next time people are like, why don't the Muppets do something with Ryan Johnson? We could just be like, hey, look, they already did a murder mystery. Here it is. Enjoy, Christy. So this, if you subtract the uk spot is my favorite episode we've seen so far uh, i think the the high concept thing is a big swing that works for them I, I i think they found an equal partner in liza i think her muppetiness is very complimentary she's one of those people and yeah five stars n- no notes love it david yeah pretty much the same you know, I think it's interesting to think about this in opposition to the Lynn Redgrave episode where they did the Robin Hood performance, I guess, because that one still had the regular Muppet show going on backstage, whereas this one, even though they go out of their way to make sure we know that that they are putting on a play, the play extends to the backstage set in ways that are complicated, <laughs> epistemologically. Um, but... <laughs> Because of that, it it does so totally engross us in this like world within the world that they're creating, and it works so well. I don't think I would want to see a Muppet show where every episode was this, but I think because it is special, that makes it more special. I know that's a stupid thing to say, but there you go. Michelle. Yeah, agreed. Because this was a special occasion and a special guest star, and they went all out, I, I don't need for it to make dramaturgical sense. It's just so perfect for so many reasons. And if it's any indication that w- we had to reschedule this recording a couple of times and every time I was like, that that's fine. We can, somebody needs to recover from being sick. I don't mind watching this a fourth time. I don't mind watching this a fifth time. <laughs> every time I rewatched it, I screamed and laughed at all the same places um, because uh, you know what? It's Liza's face. It's just, you can't turn away from it. It takes over every inch of your attention. And there are a couple of moments in this episode that, man, I would just rewind and watch over and over and over again. They let Liza play to her strengths and they let the Muppets play to their strengths. And it just comes together so beautifully. After we watched this at the finale, my spouse 
leapt up off the couch and yelled, Liza Minnelli, you fucking goddess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there you go. No notes other than the one note. Yeah, I don't I don't even mind the UK spot, which possibly makes me a bad person. We'll talk about it. Um, But but yeah, no, it's my favorite so far. Uh, You know, we have we have outright said uh, in the past how much we were looking forward to this episode. And I was a little nervous um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but like Copacabana is a perfect song. It's a perfect performance of a perfect song. It's a perfect Muppet rendition of a perfect song. Anytime Copacabana comes up in conversation, which is more often than you might think, my response is, have you seen Liza Minnelli do it on The Muppet Show? And like, so I have watched that YouTube clip a lot, but I didn't remember any of the rest of it. And so I was like, I think it's a good episode. It's probably a good episode. What if it's just five minutes and the rest of it is terrible? It's not. It's a great episode. It's a perfect episode. And we should get into it. Liza Minnelli, 15 seconds of curtain, Liza. Oh, thank you, Scooter. Scooter, that was a great rehearsal. You think so? Yeah, let's do the show. So this is a murder mystery. There are going to be a lot of Muppets dropping dead in this episode, whether they are rehearsing or not, just in case anybody is sensitive about that sort of thing. I appreciate that both in this moment and then also... During Kermit's introduction, Scooter will do a similar thing. Twice, they go out of their way to say, like, look, this is a make-believe death. This is what's going to happen in the episode to come. So that if you are young uh, when you're seeing this, that it's sort of, like, leads you by the hand that it's not going to be a scary thing. These are just playing pretend, even though, like, maybe you know that because they're, in fact, you know, dolls wiggling around on the screen. But, (laughs) you know, they're very lifelike. And who among us wouldn't drop dead if Liza Minnelli said our name? There you go. I will say that that actually that technique did not work for me as a kid. I remember being a child and seeing this episode and really being terrified of it. The idea that there could be some like unseen threat lurking in a place that is very familiar really gave me the willies. Uh, this this episode I remember as being one that was was a little too scary for me as a kid. That's fair. Uh, we should explain that what just happened was Scooter <laughs> came to call in Liza and uh, then immediately fell down with a knife in his back but uh, turn out to just be rehearsing. But yes, there will be more and campier Muppet deaths ahead. Michal and I recently uh, attended an event at the Museum of the Moving Image, and they played a bunch of these uh, little promos that they did for the show, uh, which were usually Jim and Frank, but sometimes other combinations. Uh, And they were mostly improvised, and they were like these 10-second promos for each episode. And there's actually a great wiki page of all of them, which uh, so I think I'll, I'll start putting them on the show page. Sadly, the Liza Minnelli one is not available online anywhere, but it was in this reel and it's Kermit like doing his intro and then Scooter walks on and dies just like this. And Kermit says, I guess this week is, and then he dies. Liza Minnelli and Scooter pops up and goes, oh, I love her. (laughs) 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 So good. Feels very Richard Hunt. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, Statlin and Waldorf this week are also a, a harbinger of doom in the intro. Run for your lives! This show is murder! <laughs> and uh, Gonzo successfully plays something on his trumpet. It It's not the end of the entertainer exactly. It's Joplin-esque. That's my new hit single. I think it's the song we're about to hear multiple times in the episode. I think you're right. But I also, because 
we haven't yet heard it in this episode, right. thought, oh no, it's the entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. <laughs> As you may have gathered, this is a concept episode. Uh, it integrates all the onstage bits and the backstage bits and the songs, which we usually split up into different segments, but this is one unified story. So we're going to break our format and just go through it. Ladies and gentlemen, the Muppet players hereby present an evening of intrigue and mystery. Let the murders begin. The Muppet Show backstage. Come on, that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? Get out of show business. <laughs> oh, oh that just made my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I make my own fun. Good. So we open on the offices of... Kermit the Frog, private detective, going over his paperwork from a missing polywog case when in walks the glamorous actress Liza O'Shaughnessy, who has been through a frightening ordeal. I got to my dressing room this morning and I found this note. Uh, close down the show. If you try to open, you will all die. Where'd you find it? Oh, it was ghastly. It was pinned to my dresser. So? What's so ghastly? Well, it was pinned with this, and my dresser's name was Gladys. <laughs> uh, this being a knife. It was ghastly. In this scene, Kermit calls Liza Toots, and I've always been weirded out by Toots, so I went down a rabbit hole trying to learn about the etymology of it, and it goes back to people calling feet Tootsies. So, yeah, anytime you hear someone call somebody toots just think that there's a a foot connection <laughs> huh someday we'll find it <laughs> <laughs> he also calls her sweet lips so i guess he, th that's his way of calling her sweet feet as well anyway kermit hops off to the theater to investigate he observes a rehearsal for liza's opening number and liza is not ready yet but her understudy is miss o'shaughnessy's not quite ready yet fritz okay we'll do it for the understudy then fritz I will not walk through some dumb rehearsal. You promised me I would star in this turkey? Uh, let me get this straight. She is Liza O'Shaughnessy's understudy? Oh, uh, they're not exactly the same type. They're not exactly the same species. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Miss, uh, uh, dear. <laughs> so Kermit... Uh, says that this is the Majestic Theater, and it's worth mentioning that that's the Broadway theater that was home to Phantom of the Opera for many, many years, that Carol Burnett is currently campaigning to have renamed for Hal Prince. And that's also the theater where Liza's show, The Act, played from uh, October of 1977 to July 1978. So uh, that may be a little in-joke nod to her specifically. But then in the opening scene, somebody, or Liza calls it the Roxy. So... Oh, yeah. Kermit says you have a show opening at the Roxy. Yeah, and Kermit calls the Roxy. So. It's a majestic theater. Maybe it's just a majestic Roxy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> also, can we talk about the weird film directoriness of Fritz, the ostensible theater director? Who's played by Julia Strangepork, we should say. Yeah, he's holding a megaphone with the beret and vest and bullhorn and when he keeps saying things like cut and action and take three i didn't even absorb those i was just watching liza but yeah it's very strange. now that you say it there's a part of me that wonders if maybe at some point this was going to be behind the scenes of a movie like it was going to be because I, I think a lot of those films noir often sometimes it's a you know i could place them in my head i could place them in a theater or i could place them on a movie set 
I wonder if that was the idea at some point and that just kind of stuck around for the director. I bet it's that they said to the Muppet Workshop folks, uh, <laughs> in this episode, he's going to be a director and that's what they did to the puppet. And they were like, shit, we better, or not even, I don't even know if it was a conscious shit, we better script it like a film director. It's just like, well, if you have this puppet, I know what to do with that. And I think it's also like, it. like, I remember as a kid, like knowing lights, camera, action, like, I don't know if this is still true, but like, like those are these are terms that everyone knows or knew of just like that's that's how movies work that's those are things directors say and i don't think anyone knows the equivalent theater terms i'm not sure i know the equivalent theater terms right like <laughs> they just just rehearsals don't work the same way and right so it's 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 a it's an easy shorthand even though it doesn't actually make any sense yeah you know i wonder if this is a reference to Fritz Lang, the director, the film director. Oh, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm really stretching here. I'm just trying to meet them more than halfway. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> very well. Regardless of what medium they are performing this in, Liza finally appears on stage, compact in hand. She's ready for her number. Fritz, darling, I'm ready for rehearsal. Oh, good. Now remember, this is your big moment. Here, I want the spark. The moment of magic, the raw, unbridled passion. You know what I want? Yeah. Smile and show my legs. There goes a pro. God, I love it so much. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get to the opening number. about liza singing the phrase she lost her tony that i immediately think award <laughs> like it, i always like have to like do a anyway uh this is copacabana which is a, a barry manilow song from 1978 so pretty new at this point uh, it was written by barry manilow jack feldman who is uh most famous as the there's some newsies and bruce sussman and uh, Barry Manilow and Bruce Sussman wrote a musical called Harmony, which by the time you hear this will have closed on Broadway. Womp womp. But Copacabana was a huge hit. It peaked number eight on the Hot 100, number six on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart, uh, number 10 on Cashbox. Uh, it was a huge hit around the world. Uh, and it was Barry Manilow's first gold single for a song he wrote or co-wrote, gold meaning over one million sold. And it earned uh, Barry Manilow his first and only Grammy for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance in 1979. It's only Grammy? Yeah. That's shocking to me. Yeah, that's bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. You're crying all the way to the bank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a story song. Uh, and uh, as such, Barry Manilow and his collaborators expanded it into a full-length made-for-TV musical, also called Copacabana, that starred uh, Barry Manilow and Annette O'Toole. And it is very frustrating that this film is not available to watch 
currently. It is not streaming, not even like in sort of the surreptitious places that I look. Uh, the DVD is long out of print. You can get it on eBay for like $100, which I'm not going to do. Uh, I, I desperately wanted to watch this in preparation for the episode and was thwarted. Alas. Yeah. And that TV musical was later expanded by them into a stage show that ran on London's West End for a couple of years. And according to Wiki, there have been over 200 productions of it, but there's no source cited, so I don't know where or when or how. But yeah, let's talk about this version of it. It's delightful. Yes. <laughs> so it's it's uh, Liza as uh, the aforementioned Lola, with a mutation as t- Tony and a troll as Rico. And the troll has a real Harold Zidler from Moulin Rouge thing going on. It also features Liza as the narrator. She's playing two roles simultaneously. Yes. Which maybe indicates that we are watching a film because they they cut her in and out over shots of herself. Oh, that's a good point. Also, there's Droop just hanging out at the Copa. With a cocktail on his hand. It's so yeah. good. Living his best life. I wish he were in the disco section because, you know, I do, I do believe Droop is canonically queer and should be at the disco, but I do love him in the nightclub section. In the disco section, we do get Janice wearing like a sparkly halter. Uh, so they, they throw us a bone. Oh, I missed it. Even though I've watched this five times, I'm just watching Liza. <laughs> I do think that Liza's costumes and hair in this number just are stunning. Like she's got this red dress that's absolutely gorgeous. She's got a black outfit that's absolutely gorgeous. She just looks amazing. Yeah. I will say the cheeks are extraordinarily 70s. Like we want to drill down into the makeup. Uh-huh. Like she's got a, a contour on there that looks almost like, I, I don't know. It's you like cut the it mask with a... of the red death. It, it, like, it's yeah. Queen of Jason. <laughs> yeah. But in like the right, in the right way, it makes sense. Like it's so melodramatic. I mean, I, I, mm. I'm not really a Barry Manilow fan as we've discussed before, but I love this song because it is like, it is a little one act play. Like it's, it's not just a story song. It's like, it's a story song. Like it is, it is not subtle. And it's a murder ballad. They made it less subtle. It is a murder ballad. And then they made it even less subtle. Like it is, they just, all they do is just act it out totally straight. And, but like, I think I, I except I, in the song, there is one shot. And in the Muppet right. version, there is like a round of shots that goes yeah. on for an well, entire verse. There's a round of shots, but also there's no visual of a gun. There's no, like, right. it's, you actually sort of see them fight and he falls. Like, it, that's all very stylized. And I chose the clip I chose because I wanted, like, I wanted to get that transition from the nightclub to the disco. Like, even that is like the arrangement is more than Barry Manilow did. More than Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> this number was choreographed. This episode was choreographed by Norman Maine, and it's good. But I'm a little sad that uh, our girl Jillian Lynn didn't do it. I just would like to have seen what a Jillian Lynn Lasminelli pairing would have brought us. It would have brought us Fletcher Bird the disco. Yeah, okay. Oh. You sound like it's a bad yeah. thing. Nope, just to sit in the facts. I also I don't I don't love... So much flailing. So much flailing. <laughs> well, I don't love the um the depiction of Rico necessarily. Like there's such even it's weird because they're monsters, but there's such a clear, like sort of like handsome, skinny, and like fat and gross dichotomy between yeah. those two Muppets. Cast Fletcher Bird as Rico, it's a whole different vibe, and I'm not mad about it. That version can exist in our hearts, but yes. aside from being our favorite song in our favorite episode, you know, if we only have the one note, yeah, I think we can move on to backstage when Liza 
really commits to her conversation with Zoot. What'd you think? Oh, you was fans, skadiddly blop tastic. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Oh, you're too good to be a person. You should have been a saxophone. Does that mean that I'm your sax symbol? Whatever. He wants to fuck that Muppet so bad. <laughs> but she she looks at us and like her lip quivers. Uh, it's just so over the top. It's incredible. I, yeah, I can't stop thinking about it. I love when a guest really sells that they are there with their, they're actually backstage. They're actually talking to somebody, you know, Vincent Price has this amazing ability to like sell his interactions with them. And Liza does a great job. It's just uh, fantastic to watch somebody who's like, oh no, no, these are just my coworkers. These are my colleagues. <laughs> these are people that I am trying to impress, trying to fuck somewhere along that line. Well, it's also interesting, you know, with her hair done up for Copacabana, she looks very much like the character she plays in New York, New York, where uh, the whole film, well, at least the first half of the film that I watched before I gave up, uh, is about her romance with Robert De Niro, who is a saxophone player. So, like, you sort of have a little hint of what could have been if they had cast a more charismatic lead opposite her, like Zoot. Like Zoot. (laughs) Could have been a hit. Yeah, I think Zoot, I think charismatic, romantic lead. So we we continue with the the play or the movie or the musical or whatever this is. Fritz tries to regroup everyone, but oh no, he's shot. He's dead. Like now the show will never go on. What are you people saying? Fritz was a man of the theater. He died trying to turn the grease paint and tinsel into magic. Why, this show could be his final tribute! Fritz would have wanted it this way! And then Gonzo hustles everybody on stage, and they all just start rushing on. He goes, don't step on Fritz! Just walking over Fritz's body. I can't speak for the rest of you, but I definitely know people who would do exactly what Gonzo did in this situation uh, without missing a beat the way that Gonzo also does not miss a beat. Like, the body is not cold, and they're like, but the show... Yeah, the show he must would go on. It's, it's really, it's the right thing because it's a tribute. Yeah. <laughs> what he would have wanted. So yeah, the show must go on. So we must go on to the next number, which is uh, the thing that, that Gonzo is hustling everyone on stage to do. Angels in the sky, promise to fly and die. There's gonna be a great day. Yeah, it's going to be a great day, is the, the name of this song. Uh, it was written by Vincent Humans, uh, Edward Lisko, and Billy Rose. It's from the 1929 Broadway flop Great Day, which only ran for 29 performances, but was later p- purchased by MGM as a Joan Crawford vehicle that was not finished. <laughs> was Joan going to sing? That's a good question. We'll never know. <laughs> Joan was in the musical Dancing Lady opposite Clark Gable, which is mostly remembered today as Fred Astaire's first MGM musical. But I don't remember if she sings in it, but she certainly like acquits herself well as the leading lady in the musical. All right. I would love to have seen more of those. So funnily enough, so this was purchased by MGM because it was a flop full of bangers. There were a couple of other well-known songs in it, More Than You Know and Without a Song. 
and they'd been recorded by Bing Crosby, Bing Bing Bing, and uh, noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. And, bing Bing Bingo. Yeah, they, they tried a second time to make a movie of it with Jeanette McDonald, but that didn't happen either. But yeah, this song made the rounds in the subsequent decades. Uh, Sarah Vaughn recorded it in the 60s. Barbara Streisand sang it in Funny Lady. It popped up in some Kellogg's commercials in the 80s. Yeah, so it, for a song from a 29 performance, 1929 flop, it has a pretty big footprint. Somebody please make an album and name it Flop Full of Bangers. <laughs> <laughs> and put it on floppy disks. This is something that my mom would like sing at me. Like to get you off to school? Yeah, kind of like just the just the when you're down and out, just like the first line or two. That's really sweet. Yeah. Paul McCartney has a song by the same name that to me feels like it's ripping off this song. Like the the melody is different, but his lyrics scan to this melody. Um, huh. I'm not a Paul McCartney expert, especially not like recent Paul McCartney. So I don't know if, if this is ringing bells for anyone and if anyone has insight into that. I'm going to look it up. It, it may be like not a ripoff, but a tribute. But sure. again, like I don't, I don't know enough about the context. So in the context on the stage, they're all dressed as angels and Fritz is not in the picture until suddenly he is. He just rises up and is hoisted above everybody's heads and yeah. travels off to angel heaven it where is the implied. angels go when they die. It is implied that they use Fritz's dead body as a prop in their stage yeah, show. He doesn't move. He doesn't move. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Which, like, in some context would just be because he's a puppet. But in this context is because he is dead. It's because or because we remember that this is a show within a show within a show. And, you know, no one's really dead. Sure. sure. But Gonzo's like, the show must go on. It'll be a tribute. We'll use his corpse as we a will, prop. We, we will yeet him into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> also, back to the lyrics for a second. Is meeting Gabriel a good thing? Doesn't that mean you're dead? Yeah, but like in in the but it means that you've gotten belief heaven, that you've gotten hell. heaven. Sure, so. but in the song, but the song isn't really about heaven. The song is when you're down and out, look up your head and shout. It's going to be a great day. You're going to go meet Gabriel. <laughs> There's Hooray. like a jump there. But I, I think like, the idea is that Gabriel is like the herald of good things. Not sure, sure, yeah. sure. But, you know, not informing you you've died. Yeah, but this is not the only version of the song to make that vague connection like the Barbara Streisand version explodes into sort of a gospel number so it also seizes on the Gabriel thing as like the religious aspect it is uh, we'll include the video in the show notes it is it is a disaster of an overblown 1970s movie musical number it is uh I, I like Funny Lady a lot but it is not by any reasonable description a good movie and uh, this is a good example of why so Detective Kermit watches this whole number and shakes his head, befuddled. I'll never understand show people. A murder is committed and they all go out and sing. So this is literally the plot of the 2007 Broadway musical Curtains, written by Candor and Ebb. Liza's buddies. So I don't know. I'm not mm. accusing anyone of anything, but like that that is a line from the show, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and the the ending is the same sorry to spoil a decade plus old musical yeah so the investigation continues backstage Fozzie is here as patrol bear he's conducting investigations uh he investigates by asking if anybody did it and they say no scooter appears he just starts ratting out everybody <laughs> 
explaining why every single person there had a motive to kill the director. And just as he's about to reveal who done it, Scooter is stabbed in the back and falls down dead. So I know this is not how we're supposed to watch this show, but it's also how we always watch this show. This scene is staged with Scooter. It's in the backstage. Scooter is standing on the ground level with people in front of him and behind him and a whole bunch of people watching from the balcony looking right down at him from behind. There's no way he could have been stabbed in the back by someone who is not visible and not have at least one other person see exactly who did it. Well, Eliza sees a hand throw a knife. Yeah, wasn't the knife thrown? Was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's why Kermit has to go to the to the dressing room. Oh. And it's from up on the second level. Like a hand threw a knife from outside that dressing room and somehow got to Scooter, who was in the foreground. Right. It still doesn't actually make sense, but it doesn't make sense for a different reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you could make that throw. Like I, I don't I don't think a knife could could go no. from that door to that back without. <laughs> We're gonna hitting make a the whole rail. JFK about yeah. this. <laughs> Maybe there was a second thrower. <laughs> I think it was Scooter. <laughs> he acted alone. Did himself in. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a scream situation. Yeah, he's trying to throw him off the scent. He's in cahoots. Yeah, that must be it. We haven't referred to Scooter as a conniving twink in a while, um, but but we're due. <laughs> but yeah, he has no compunctions about just giving everybody away. So no wonder somebody murders him. Uh, as soon as he drops dead, Gonzo whooshes in and attempts to start the song again, and everybody yells at him to shut up, which is nice. Uh, Liza, as we mentioned, has a lead. Uh, she tells Kermit she saw a hand throw a knife out of a darkened dressing room, so she sends him into the dressing room to investigate, and Kermit gets knocked out in the dark, and that's when we cut to the UK spot. But before we move to the UK spot, I just am going to give another shout out to Liza's face, because... She looks directly at us again, and as she tells Kermit to be careful, it's, oh my gosh, I love it so much. (laughs) There is, of course, a gif. Yes. Is there a gif of Scooter's little scooter fist when they say, do you know who did it? And he says, I sure do. (laughs) I'm not sure. I will check and I will make one if there's not. (laughs) (sighs) It's beautiful. Worth mentioning to young people who don't remember uh, this phenomenon called commercial breaks, that this is actually <laughs> leading into a commercial break and not directly into the UK spot, which would have been an incredibly effective commercial break. Uh, and it it's the first time in a while watching something on streaming where I sort of wished there was a commercial just for the dramatic effect of having to wait to find out what's next. And then if you're a British person, like having to wait even longer because of the freaking UK spot. <laughs> I mean, is that what I wish that like we would suddenly cut to commercial and I want somebody to try to sell me a car or cereal or something? Yes, perhaps a uh, cereal with the song Great Day. Each morning brings to you much to look forward to. It's going to be a great day. Let the Kellogg's pour. Watch those old spirits soar. Calling you for a great day. K-E-L-L-O. It's double good. Starting Kellogg's way. Well, let's talk about the freaking UK spot. Uh, and again, a, a slight content warning here for uh, racism. If your temper's getting the top hand, 
All you gotta do is just stop and press that, that peace button, baby. Bury that hatchet like a chalk toss, chicken sauce, chattahoochee, chippewas. Do. Uh huh. All things considered, this could have been worse. I don't think it's great. Almost word for word what I was going to say, Matt. I'm so glad somebody else said it first. Um. (laughs) Awfully tropey. Awfully tropey. uh, You know, not a, not a, I wouldn't say a positive representation, but uh, you know, hey, there's no slurs that I could think of. Yeah. Yeah. The dogs are wearing shirts. dogs, right. They're not not wearing like headdresses Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah, caricatures of native clothing. On the other hand, the musical arrangement leans into sort of a stereotypical like powwow sound, which is it does. not the how whole, the song was originally written. There's like a lot of, you know, Peace Pipe War Paint stuff, but I, like, and on the flip side, I appreciate that they're naming actual indigenous nations and it's not gibberish. And I, I felt very conflicted about this song, which is, you know, both nonsense and as Matt said, could be a lot worse. We've heard a lot worse on this show. Right. It's not sensitively done. They didn't mean to do it in a sensitive way. It just happened that way. Yeah. Or it happened that it could have been worse. So, Christy, what is this song? Let's talk about the song. Uh, So, yeah, the the song is called Pass That Peace Pipe. It was written by Roger Edens, Hugh Martin, and Ralph Blaine for the 1947 MGM musical Good News, which was the second film adaptation of the 1927 stage show Good News. Uh, The 1947 version had a Comden and Green screenplay, and they also contributed a new song to it um and we've talked about good news in the past uh the musical is the source of the song the varsity drag that uh statler and waldorf uh, did in the steve martin episode and yeah i agree it could be a lot worse i'm always happy to see muppet dogs i'm a big fan of muppet dogs i just you know in the midst of an otherwise perfect episode i'm just like oh couldn't it have been something better but you know Let's leave it to the UK spot to be frustrating. (laughs) And the other thing that's striking about it is that all of these dogs get murdered per the plot of the episode. And it's kind of gruesome. Yeah. (laughs) Like, right. One of them gets an arrow through the head, right. There's an ax involved and like, yeah, there are tomahawks and yeah. Like there's, there's still Muppets, but like, it's, it's a little, the, the arrow through the head in particular, because like the way that, I mean, it's, it's very, like brilliantly puppeteered, but, but I, I don't like it. <laughs> it's a lot. The band is also on stage, and Animal also gets an axe to the head. And uh, don't worry, he tells yeah. us, "Oh, me fine, still alive." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I am not opposed to Muppet violence, but there was something about like the the, the head tilt and the eyes, and it just was like, ooh. Uh, this is the second time Muppet Dogs have performed this song because Rolf. Performed it on the Jimmy Dean show previously. So that's a nice little callback for mm. uh, some segment of the audience. Nobody murdered him for it. I, I presume. I haven't seen that. <laughs> that's why they thought they could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> he set a precedent. So after we're, we return from either the UK spot or people trying to sell you cars or cereal, which we've been excited about, presumably, we cut to Kermit, who is out cold in a dressing room. Liza rushes to his side and is relieved to find that he is still alive. Oh, Kermit, thank goodness you're all right. Oh, you scared me to death. Come over here. For a minute, I thought you'd croaked. Well, well, I I tried to, but I was too weak. We're not above a good croaking joke. And then they sing a beautiful song together. When it all comes true, 
Just the way you've planned It's funny But the bells don't ring It's a quiet thing When you hold the world In your trembling hand You'd think you'd hear a choir sing It's a quiet thing So this is my all-time favorite moment on The Muppet Show. Tell us more. This is a song called A Quiet Thing from the aforementioned Flora the Red Menace from 1965, a musical with music by John Kander and lyrics by Fred Ebb. And it was Liza's Broadway debut. As David mentioned, she won a Tony for it. And she was the youngest person to have won Best Actress in a Musical at the age of 19, which is a record she still holds, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I I love this. I mean, I, I, I love the song. I love Candor and Ebb. But I love it because the, you know, like pe- people like, for example, Michael Caine in Muppet Christmas Carol get a lot of credit for, you know, treating Muppets as co-stars and as human, as as, as live and breathing. And the, the way the way Liza's calibrated the stillness of this the commitment to it's like no this 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 moment is i mean yeah it's part of something that is you know doofy writ large but it's the beauty of it in the moment is just astonishing it's astonishing i can't watch it without crying it just the artistry of it, the way Kermit hesitates when he sings along, you know, he sings it's a it's a quiet thing. Ugh, it guts me. It just it's it's wonderful. Yeah. And Liza's focus is when she's looking at Kermit, she is fully focused on Kermit. And when she's looking off into the distance, she is fully focused on the the meaning of the song and the power of this wish that she's giving to Kermit that he's going to succeed in this mission in finding a fake murder in a fake episode of a doll wiggling show, but she's fully committed to it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It says something about the layers of suspension of, of disbelief that come with childlike wonder. You know, I, I think that's, that's the, the best of the Muppets is when you've got like a song like this, that's incredibly sophisticated that's like emotionally sophisticated, but it's at the same time speaking to that little kid who's watching, who is worried for Kermit, who is worried, who who is kind of scared by this. It, it it's 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 reaching out and and giving that kid a hug. I just I I think it's it's the best of what the Muppets can do. It's the best of what musical theater can do. It's the best of what TV can do i i just i love it it's also something very smart about taking the song that's in its original context about love and here making it about a different kind of success but without really hammering it over the head 
and it just it it works kind of on both levels at the same time and in a really beautiful way and it ends with a joke and the joke doesn't kill it that's the other thing yeah it's like you it doesn't like puncture the moment it you know enhances it i don't think i even noticed watching the episode five times that it's just piano i just noticed it now hearing the clip it would have been so easy to like put some strings in it and sort of make it a little more manipulative, but they don't need to. And after those two big production numbers, it, it really is so quiet. So after all that quiet, uh, we move on to the canteen where Fozzie is questioning New Zealand, after which a bunch more Muppets drop dead. All right, do you have an alibi? I have a halibut. No, no, an alibi. You know, somebody who can say where you were. Yeah, a halibut. You would with me all day. And then uh, it turns out that either something is poisoned or they're not saying poison. They're saying the French word for fish. But either way, a bunch of Muppets drop dead. Gonzo wishes back in to attempt to get everybody to sing again. But nobody is left alive to shut him up. When you're down and out. I know, shut up. It's so sad. He's just surrounded by corpses. It's like a zombie movie. So as we approach the end of the episode, Kermit has a plan to reveal the identity of the murder, and Liza is in on it. But Kermit, how can you be certain this is going to work? You're going to trust me, kid. Yeah. Now you know what to do? Of course, smile and show my legs. No, 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 no. that was the other guy. Oh, yeah, oh, yes, yeah, 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 right, right. yeah, what a pro. So speaking of drag queens, uh, she has very pale makeup on in the scene that is not in any way blended with her neck or any of the rest of her body. <laughs> and it's very Shields and Yarnell, and who am I to criticize the great Liza Minnelli? But it 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 was very noticeable in high definition. Yeah, I I noticed that too. I thought that there was some sort of like plot reason for it, but I, I it just looked strange. There was sort of like a I, my first thought was like is there some sort of geisha thing happening here? Right. Like, why is she done up in this way? Is she going to put on a turtleneck? No, no, that's <laughs> no. just okay. Yeah. And I, it, it doesn't even seem to be blended like into her bangs. Like it just, <laughs> it's, it looks like she's wearing one of those like dramaturgy masks. <laughs> it's just like white porcelain, just a stripe of it on the face. Yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous, but then like, it, there's nothing to, she, she needs like a tie, yeah. like Fozzie. She yeah, she had, it's intentional. Like whatever she's doing, it, it's it's part of her look. She's got that iconic side curl thing on the sides of her face. So th this is what what she planned to do today. So whatever's going on in Liza's face, Kermit has gathered all the surviving Muppets on stage, and Liza makes an announcement that she knows who did it, and then the lights go out. I know who committed these dastardly, cold-blooded, heinous crimes, these murders. I hereby accuse! What happened? The lights come up and reveal that Liza has been stabbed. She's clutching a knife to her chest, and then she's clutching the curtain, and then she's clutching assorted Muppets, and then somehow she's clutching a bouquet of flowers to her chest, and she performs the most impeccable death scene in the history of any medium we might be covering today. Kermit, the final curtain has fallen. I've played my last role. Good night, sweet prince. Hello, death. 
Uh, uh, somebody call a doctor. Too late, Green Buddy. Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to, to Harold Square. No, forget him. Harold's really square. Bye bye. That is an extremely funny bye bye. Oh, I just every time I watch it, I just scream. Ah. It sounds like Jenna Maroney. Like she's yeah. it's, it's, like that's the quality of that. Like like <laughs> beep, beep, pew. That's so cartoony. And like if you haven't watched the episode, like you you have to you have to watch Copacabana, obviously, but you also have to watch this. It's so because it's also such good physical comedy. It, she's perfect. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. she like slings her head to the side, like yeah, it like grabs the curtains, falls down dead. Just, oh. <laughs> And yeah, and keeps turning her head like to look at Kermit and then again directly at us. Like she's a Muppet. She's basically yeah. Yeah. She's essentially Muppet. a Muppet in this episode, and it's wonderful. Yeah, you're right. That that is exactly why she fits in so well. She has exactly the same energy as the Muppets. Yeah. Or she's a little more over the top, which brings them a little more over the top. And yeah, everything is just so up in this episode. Yeah, you're right. You know, that's why I think Charles Grodin works so well in the great Muppet Caper. Like you know, you find somebody who's like, all right, th- this is how you're doing it. Well, I'm going to match your energy and give you more. Like, he's just a great scene partner. Yeah, it just works so well. So to all appearances, Liza, the actress, is dead. Statler and Waldorf, in the context of the play, or possibly not, we'll just never quite know. But Statler and Waldorf race on stage. Oh, no, not Liza. We love Liza. No, we didn't mean to bump her off. No, just the rest of you guys. Uh-huh. I knew it. Scratch a critic and you get an assassin. Then then your death scene was a trick? Well, after all, darling, I mean, I am an actress. Bravo! Bravo! Of course they love Liza. <laughs> Honestly, this, I think it gives a lot of credence to Statler and Waldorf being a gay couple <laughs> like, mm-hmm. racing on to say, we love Liza. <laughs> yep. I can just see me and my partner doing exactly that. How did it get so out of hand that they would have, they thought that they had stabbed Liza? I mean, it's not <laughs> worth thinking about because we heard gunshots. We heard they were trying to bump off all the other Muppets, I guess, while the lights were out. And, yeah, all at once. Yeah. The, sometimes a knife just goes astray but yeah they're arrested Bo throws the book at them <laughs> they're jailed up in their box all's well that ends well kermit and liza share another little moment where kermit says oh i guess this is the end where you know they they've been playing up the dynamic between them over the course of this episode and liza says oh this is not the end and she rips off the robe that she's wearing to reveal this I, would you call it a pantsuit what it what is this yellow ensemble it's incredible well, whatever it is, when every time she unveils it, I also scream. And uh, what comes next is literally Jim Henson's gift to homosexuals of all generations. Uh, because there's an alternate universe where Liza never performed this song on television. And, and that universe is much poorer than ours. I did, like, when I saw this, I found it incredibly bonkers outside of the context of The Muppet Show to have Liza singing this particular song you know i'm delighted i'm I'm thrilled that she sings the song but um inviting us to compare her personal life story to uh gypsy is so strange to me <laughs> solid point let's hear it yeah sing out Liza. Liza. <laughs> <laughs> 
at a world where the 80s had been kinder to Liza, would she have starred in the production that Tyne Daly did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yes. or the or the Bette Midler TV version, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, there is an alternate universe where Liza and Judy did Gypsy. Right. You know, they did record together wherever we go in that first London Palladium concert album that they did together. So that idea was definitely in the ether from almost as soon as Gypsy was a thing. Hmm. Man, I'm imagining that world. So we probably don't have to explain this song to our listeners, but if there are a handful of you uh, who don't recognize it, this is Everything's Coming Up Roses from the musical Gypsy, uh, music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, heard of him, from 1959, introduced by uh, former Muppet Show guest star Ethel Merman. And um, this is the third song from Gypsy that we've heard uh, Ethel Merman did together wherever we go on her episode, and we had All I Need Is The Girl on the Bruce Forsyth episode. And uh, what's funny about this is that a lot of people don't realize that uh, the phrase everything's coming up bleh, was coined by Sondheim. There's this apocryphal story of I- either Ethel Merman or, or Jerry Robbins not understanding what the lyric meant and asking him, everything's coming up roses, what? <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, like I, I think back to a few years ago, I, I went to Target and there's a point to this. I <laughs> used the, 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 the Target app, like I used a coupon on the Target app and then like a thing popped up on my phone that was like, everything's coming up Christy. And I was like, man, it's like, it's like, does, I, I wish Sondheim could get, you know, like a nickel from, from Target for them saying that. But. Or every time somebody says everything's coming up Millhouse. Yeah. Anyway, I love this. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> this is Liza at her most Liza. And at the end, when she does her big finish, and I wish I had thought to ask Adam to clip this for us, uh, when she does, you know, everything's coming up roses for me and for you, she crams every vowel. And every diphthong. In the English language and every other language <laughs> into the word you in a way that is so just extraordinary. <laughs> I I can clip it and you can we can drop it in later because... We listeners should hear that if you're not watching along. Yeah, that is its own art. It is a thing of beauty and wonder. A joy forever. Anyway, it's it is sad that Liza never got to play the role of Rose, the lead of Gypsy, uh, on stage or on screen, but she did perform a number of songs from Gypsy in her concerts over the years. So uh, this was uh, a little taste of that. And uh, it's 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 both good and bad because it would have been a great fit for her when she was at her full strength. And um, we'll just always have to wonder what could have been. And at least we have this, which is a pretty yes. fantastic gift. Incidentally, Muppet Show guest star Linda Lavin did go on to take on the role of Rose in that 1989 production after Time Daily left it. So there you go. Tie it all up there. (laughs) In a little bow of roses. That doesn't work. Before we close out, Liza demonstrates her trick knife on Kermit, or is it? I'd like to say what an honor it's been for this little green frog to work with Miss Liza Minnelli. (laughs) 
thank you so much. I can't tell you what a thrill it's been being on your show tonight. Oh, that's nice. And you know something else? I've always wanted to do a, you know, like a murder mystery like we did. Oh, by the way, can I keep this uh, trick knife as a souvenir? A trick knife? Yeah, it's, it's only a prop. See? <laughs> What'd you do? The frog. I was only kidding. Oh. <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Muppet Show. Oh, Gonzo at the end there yelling, stab me, stab me. <laughs> I missed that. Katie you missed that? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for letting me know. Made have to watch this a sixth time. Yeah. Uh, I also just like, you know, we we do the Frank Osgood at his job shtick a lot, and he is. And I wish he were in this episode more. But like, th- Jim is so good at this, especially as Kermit, having just seen that thing at Moving Image, you know, which was a whole retrospective you know, going back to the Jimmy Dean show and all that, like just Jim's chemistry with celebrities and really Kermit's chemistry with celebrities. is so good. Yeah. It's so pure. And I mean, it's, I, I know that Jim was a charismatic person and must've been charismatic to gather all these fantastic people around him, but Kermit's charisma is a whole other level. So uh, before we start to say our goodbyes, they wouldn't have final thoughts or big ideas about this episode that we haven't shared yet. Pure unadulterated love. Yeah. I really do think this one is a masterpiece. And one of the things that um, I think it has going for it, that a lot of the um, more modern Muppet uh, journeys, um, you know, I, I, I miss is the, the amount of, of chaos. Like it's, it's very artistic and wonderful and fun. And especially at the end there, when yeah, I think Gonzo screaming, stab me, stab me is a perfect example but you know the the mayhem is such an important part of what they do. In addition to the talent and the skill and the charisma and all that, that uh, I don't know. Like for for somebody looking for an answer to why did the Muppets succeed as much as they did and why were they so beloved, uh, I think this episode answers it with with all the different qualities that make the Muppets so great. It's it's I guess it's it's sort of a sampler platter of all their their best skills. That's a perfect note to end on. Before we go, Matt, tell us a little bit more about your book. And if you also want to tell us about your YouTube channel and anywhere else that you'd like people to find you, now's, now's the moment. Oh, for sure. Um, as maybe you could guess, uh, I like television and I like classic television. And I wrote a whole book about it called Hi, Honey, I'm Homo. It's a tour through the queer characters on American sitcoms going back 50 or so years, starting with Bewitched and then running through Soap and the Golden Girls and Friends and Will and Grace, of course. Uh, and many other shows. So it's available now. Hi, honey, I'm homo. And it's uh, got some behind the scenes story of the making of those shows and how those television programs both reflected what was going on with queer liberation and also had an impact on the actual real life story of queer liberation. So you can get Hi, honey, I'm homo anywhere you get books. You can go to gaysitcoms.com uh, to order a signed copy if you'd like a signed copy. And also, if you like hearing me talk to folks about uh, entertainment, uh, check out my podcast, The Sewers of Paris, uh, where I talk to queer folks about the entertainment that has affected their lives. Uh, I've got David, uh, you and I had a nice chat, and that's on the January 25th, 2024 episode. Uh, So that's thesewersofparis.com for that. And then also, I've got a YouTube channel where I talk about entertainment uh, and the making of iconic television and film uh, from a queer perspective, uh, I've got the Richard Hunt uh, video that I did a while ago, just completed one about, um, I've actually been spending a lot of time in the 50s lately, so I've got uh, one about Rock Hudson and Tab Hunter and those kinds of stars, uh, working on one about James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, so check out my YouTube channel. It's just my name, Matt Baum, M-A-T-T-B-A-U-M-E. 
uh, for my videos. And that's, uh, that's the, that's the sampler platter for me. Wonderful. And, uh, I wholeheartedly endorse both the book and the YouTube channel and the podcast. I have spent some time in all three of them. Uh, and, uh, I think if you like what we do here, you will love what Matt does and all of those things and more. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming. How long are we here for? 20 years. If I'd known that judge was giving us the box, I'd have asked for the chair. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks and we'll award you with our discussion of the Phyllis George episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I mean, it's, it's pants. I don't know if it's a suit. Yeah, they're two separate pieces. It's like pants and like a... Like a like a blouse. Like it's a, a it's a tunic. It's a, yeah, it's like a somewhere between situation. a caftan and a blouse. Yeah, it's sort of a it like it's like a rhinestone painter's smock. <laughs>